0: My name is Roman Wally. Um, This is, I think, the third time I've been here to preach this semester. So some of you might recognize me. Others of you don't. That's okay. Um, Just as a recap, I will be uh, following in Terrell's well-worn path starting next fall. Um, I'll be moving here with my sweet wife, and we'll we'll be loving on you guys. working uh, to see the Lord just move in your lives. And uh, see what he would have for us. Um, and as we've been looking forward to that, we've been just working through a lot of practicalities of where we're going to live and what transitions do we need to make. And so as we've been working through that, I've been reminded of the amount of decisions that you guys are facing in this stage of life, right? Um, college is a time where it's a sweet time, but you're making a lot of decisions. Um, <clears throat> there's increased freedom that you have, um, and so you're, you're really for the first time beginning to decide who is around me, who is speaking into my life, who am I going to pattern my life after. Um, and so a lot of that factors into am I going to stay at SFA or do I feel like I need to go to a different place? Um, I remember whenever I was here there was a lot of people who got to that middle point and said do I stick here or do I start a new way? So you're making decisions in that way. But you're also asking questions about relationships You're either in a relationship right now and trying to figure out, do I stick in this one? Do I ditch this one? Is this one headed to marriage? What does that look like? Or you're thinking about getting into one. Or you're trying to figure out, what does it look like to be single and to be content? You guys are making a lot of decisions. And then some of you are on the tail end of school here. Praise the Lord, right? Um, And so that's a relief, but also with that come a lot of questions, a lot of decisions that you're having to make. Where am I going to live? What job am I going to do? Um, what is my whole future going to unfold like? A lot of that is exciting, but a lot of that is also carries a weight with it. And as Christians, it's natural for us to ask, what is God's will for me in this situation? Right? And if we're not careful, we can, we can boil down God's will to this particular situation, this particular question, this particular circumstance. And if we don't get an answer quick that's very clear, we can make the mistake of thinking, well, God's will is not very clear for me. God's will is wrapped in mystery, and I'm not sure what he would have me do. If a brother or a sister came up to you and said, what's the will of God for your life? You might say, I don't know. Could you tell me? Because I'm asking the same question right now. And so tonight, this text that we're going to be looking at in Romans 12 is just going to be a refreshing reminder to take a step back and look at the big picture again and remember that God's will has been made very, very clear for you. And God's will has been made very, very clear for me. And simply put, the will of God for you is that you live as a worshiper of the true God. God's will for you, regardless of what specific questions you're asking, regardless of the decisions that you're trying to make right now, God's will for you is that you live as a worshiper of the of the true God. Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 21 and I really want to just hit on three things. And the first thing that I want to hit on is there is a connection between who or what we worship and how we live. These two things are inseparable. Who or what we worship overflows into how we live. That's an unavoidable connection. So that's one. Two, I want to talk about What are some of the barriers that come and block us from living out our lives as worshipers of the true God? What are some of the barriers that we face that prevent us from actually living faithfully before the Lord, living as worshipers of the true God? And then finally, we're going to talk about just some practical things that by the Spirit of God's help that we can push forward into faithfulness, push forward into obedience, walking out who we are in Christ as worshipers of the true God. Okay, so let's go ahead and dig into the Scriptures um, before we get to chapter 12, I want to show you something back in Romans chapter 1. So I know some of you already opened up. Let's go ahead and flip over to Romans chapter 1. And I want to show you this principle. Who or what you worship overflows into how you live. And this, this is true even before you became a Christian. Okay, so if you would raise your hand, you would say, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. This is my pathway. This is true even before you became a Christian. Who or what you worship overflows into how you live. Take a look with me at verses 21 through 23. In this chapter, Paul is talking about the status of humanity apart from Christ. This is humanity rejecting God, okay? 21, for although humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That is, they did not worship him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. Okay, so let's just stop there. So humanity, apart from God, did not worship God. And what's the result of that? 21, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What does that mean? That false worship, worship that is not directed towards the true God, darkens the mind and the heart. It produces a corrupt inner person. And this is the status of everybody apart from Christ. Okay, every one of us were in this boat. False worship corrupted the inner person. But what effect does that have on life? Take a look at 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So what is in the heart doesn't just remain in the heart. What is in the heart overflows into the life and it affects the body and it pours out in the life. And this happened because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what was the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem is false worship. Worship of the creature instead of the creator. What then resulted? A corrupt inner person. A darkened mind, a darkened heart. And then this began to overflow into life. This might sound a little abstract at this point, so what does that look like lived out on a day-to-day basis? Take a look at 28 through 32. This is the overflow in daily life. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, false worship, God gave them up to a debased mind, a corrupt inner person, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those who know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so, who or what you worship overflows into how you live. This is true whether you're a Christian or you're not. And I read that passage and I see myself in that before, right? And I imagine that that's the same for you. We read this passage and we see ourselves before Christ in that. This is an inseparable connection regardless of who you are. But the good news of the gospel that Paul unpacks in the book of Romans is that because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection This has been reversed. This is not an unchangeable situation. Jesus has reversed this and has made a totally new way for us. So take a look. Let's go ahead and flip back over to Romans chapter 12 now. And the same principle holds. Whether you're an unbeliever or a Christian, the same principle holds who or what you worship overflows into how you live, but things have been reversed because of Jesus from before. Things are opposite now from chapter 1. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, on the basis of everything I've said about the gospel so far, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Which is your spiritual worship. So let's just stop right there. No longer are these people who have been saved by the mercy and grace of God, no longer do they worship falsely, but they worship the true God. And whenever Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's literally saying every part of life, regardless of what you do, regardless of how mundane it seems, all of it is lived as worship unto the Lord. Keep going. Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? By the renewal of your mind. That by, the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So just like we saw in chapter 1, false worship led to a debased mind, and a debased mind led to corrupt living, a life characterized by evil and hatred. But Jesus has reversed this, right? And Christians now worship the true God. And they have minds that are being renewed. This is a progressive process. And why do they have their minds renewed? Take a look at two. So that you may discern what is the will of God. That's what we want to know. And what is the will of God? It is what is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. So, who or what you worship, or who or what you worship overflows into how you live. Christians worship the true God, and this overflows into how they live. They live the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Okay, so we have that established, but what does that exactly look like? Now flip down with me, and let's look at 9 through 21. We have a smattering of almost 30 commands here, and this is taking daily details that every one of us live on a daily basis, and it's just hitting it at the ground level and saying, this is what the good, acceptable, perfect will of God looks like. Read with me. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, that is your work ethic, but be fervent in the Holy Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice, with those who, rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, the humble, the undistinguished, those who seem embarrassing to others. Associate with them. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap coals burning on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. God has not left his will unclear. God has not left his will shrouded in mystery for you to stumble and bumble through life and wonder, what is it that the Lord would have me do? The will of God is that you would live as a worshiper of the true God and that your life would be characterized by love and by goodness. And if you want to track that out at a very basic level, just read through these commands. The will of God for your life is that you live as a worshiper of the true God. Now, there's, a, there's two senses that come along with this. There's, there's a sense of sobriety whenever we read these commands, and there's a sense of sweetness, and I, I just want to kind of unpack that real quick. And it's all rooted in who God is. So this a sense of sobriety that comes with reading these commands because of who God is Take, take the most authoritative figure that you've ever faced in your life. Maybe this is your dad. Maybe this is a coach that you've had or that you have right now. Maybe this is a professor, whoever that is, who just literally, like, said something, and they had your attention, right? And you knew that, that you had to do it, or else there would be consequences. Take that and multiply it by infinity. The king of the universe is laying this before you, right? He's saying, I love you, you're my child, and I expect this. So there's a sense of sobriety that comes with this. But that needs to go right along with the sense of sweetness that comes with this. And honestly, like I'm going to confess, I struggle at remembering this part of it. Because God is a loving Father. And if you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have accepted the grace of God that He has accomplished and given to you, then... Then these commands come as a loving father would give to them, give to his child. So it's not just a heavy handed do this or else. It is a, I love you, my son, my daughter, I love you. And I want what's best, I know what is best, and this is the pathway to life. Walk in it. And I'm with you, I'm going to help you. So we always need to remember that as we see the commands in Scripture, they are genuine. And there's a sense of sobriety that should come with him. This is the living God speaking to you, saying this is to be your way of life. But he's not far, he's not removed, and he is not waiting just to punish you. He is a good, gracious, merciful God. And he's saying, walk with me. So there's sobriety and sweetness as we read through this. But as we read through this list, we, we see this is a high call, Right? This is a high call. I was reading this with my wife and she just kind of looked at me and went, <whistles> you gotta preach that, huh? <clears throat> it's, a, it's a high call. And if we're honest with ourselves, we just struggle to live consistently uh, as worshipers of the true God. So what are some basic barriers that we face? What are some some basic things that prevent us from living consistently as worshipers of the true God? Because I, I think, honestly, if we're... If we're Christians, if we have rooted our faith in Christ, we want to live this out. Like, we read this and we see, yes, Lord, but we we struggle. And so what are some basic barriers? There's three things that I just want to talk about tonight that um, I think can kind of cover the spectrum in some sense that really prevent us from fulfilling the commands here. The first thing is we avoid committing to Christian community. The second thing is we do not live at peace with our fellow believers. And the third thing is we don't love our enemies, just simply put. So let's go ahead and talk about that first barrier. We avoid committing to Christian community. Christian community is a, is a pretty terrible catchphrase, right? Like you hear that and you're like, what does that even mean? Um, whenever I say Christian community, I'm not just talking about showing up here on Sunday morning or even Sunday night or attending various Christian activities. When I say Christian community, I'm saying, do people know you? who are fellow believers? Do they know your story? Do they know your hopes and your dreams and your faults and your flaws? Are they praying with you? Are you able to confess like, hey, I I fall short and I need help? These are the aspects of Christian community um, that the Lord would call you to. So, whenever I paint that picture, there are some of you who have a recoil within you and say, yeah, that's why I haven't committed yet, right? There's fear and there's insecurity that is behind that description. Uh, th- th- that could be for a number of reasons, really. Maybe you have never seen that modeled by your parents. Maybe you've just never seen genuine, authentic, ongoing community where people can be honest, they can be themselves. There doesn't have to be a facade. Maybe there are struggles that are going on in your life right now, and it seems like the furthest thing from what you want to do to just be honest with somebody. Maybe there is a, a sense that you will be rejected if you step into a group of people who know each other and you're, you're just forthright with where you're at, the struggles that you're facing, and you fear rejection. There are some of you who avoid committing to Christian community because of fear and insecurity. But then there are others of you who avoid committing to Christian com- community simply because you know that there's a cost involved. There's time and there's energy and effort that goes into it. That relationships just don't just happen. And so simply put, it's just a matter of there's other things that I'd like to do with my time, and so I'd rather just do those things. And so though you attend and though you're, you show up at v- various activities, there's not that ongoing habit of meeting with people, praying with people, being known and knowing others And then thirdly, there are some of you who who would just raise your hand and say, I'm involved in Christian community. But whenever I ask you, okay, so what does that look like? You might tell me something like this. Well, on Monday night, I go to this ministry event. On Tuesday night, I go to this ministry event. And you could go through the nights of the week and say, I'm here, here, here. My whole life is covered by it. And I would follow that up with just the gracious question of, okay, but who knows you at these various places? Like I said, Who knows your story? Who knows your hopes and dreams? Who knows your faults and flaws and failures and who loves you and cares for you and prays for you? And Who who do you do that with? Because whenever I say Christian community, I'm not saying attending activities. I'm saying being known by people and knowing others. And so if we don't commit to Christian community, I just want to show you the commands that we cannot fulfill here. Okay, so grab your scriptures again. Let's look at 9 through 21. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Genuine there meaning without pretense. It's not a show. There's a genuine affection within, and you demonstrate that by the way that you care for others. If you're not in community, you can't do that. 10, love one another with brotherly affection. This is as a family. There's devotion. There's loyalty. There's cost involved in loving people like this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be a leader in showing honor and mercy and grace and goodness to others. Thirteen, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Fifteen, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Sixteen, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Guys, that's like a third of the passage. And if you're not committed to Christian community, it's just simply practically not possible to fulfill a third of this passage. And so this is a genuine barrier. The second barrier that we mentioned was having unaddressed conflict with fellow believers. Okay, And there's a number of ways that you can have unaddressed conflict with, with fellow believers. One way is there's like been an explicit falling out. So either you did something to hurt the other person and it broke the relationship or the other person did something to you and it broke the relationship. And nothing has really been done sufficient to actually create peace and reconciliation between you two. And it's just kind of that awkward thing where if you see that person, you're like, mm-hmm, I'm going to walk the other way, right? That's unaddressed conflict. But there's another way, and it's a little bit more subtle. Um, and I confess, like, I have had this, and Terrell and I have had conversations like this, where um, these subtle feelings, these subtle negative feelings kind of rise up within you. It could be bitterness. For something that has been done in the past it could be envy over something that this other person has or how they are or it could be just a judgmental spirit where you see them and you just think critical thoughts and you never really say anything it just kind of wells up and it creates this divide it never flowers into a conflict but you know that there's really a divide between you two that is unaddressed conflict and I say, I, I confess that, that is something that we all deal with. Like, this is not uncommon. This is a part of being human. Let me show you the commands that we can't fulfill if there's unaddressed conflict with, with fellow believers. Take a look again. Again, verse 9, let love be genuine. It's without a show. 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Absolutely impossible if you have unaddressed conflict. And let me just say, these are, these are not selective commands where you can say, well, I fulfill this with these people, but I don't have to with this person. Like these are a call to, to all believers. 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have you ever had a situation where you have unaddressed conflict with somebody that's subtle, negative feelings, and something good happens to them? it's like impossible for you to genuinely be happy for them. Right? I've had that, certainly. Live in harmony with one another. This is the foremost one. Live in harmony with one another. This is literally thinking the same thing towards each other. These things are just impossible if you have unaddressed conflict with fellow believers. And then thirdly, the third barrier is we simply don't respond naturally in love to our enemies, right? And whenever I say an enemy, yeah, we, we got to kind of define that because I'm not just saying somebody doesn't like you. Um, that's a very broad category. An enemy is more specifically from the scriptures, somebody who's probably outside the faith and they are actively opposed to you, okay? So I don't know who an enemy would be in your life. Uh, hopefully they're not many, uh, but we all have them. They, they might be A prof who's particularly opposed to the Christian faith and he makes that very clear, she makes that very clear in class and you feel attacked by the lectures that you hear. Or it might be a roommate that you have where things are just not happening well. They're not a believer and they make it very clear that they're not concerned about whether you're upset or not. right? Or it might be a family member. Somebody who is Close to you by relation, but by the way they interact with you has just created a long history of pain and hurt and difficulty. I don't know what an enemy looks like for you, but it's somebody outside of the faith who's actively opposed to you. One of the things that is just natural to us as humans is whenever we feel attacked is to respond in anger. And that just is like an autonomic response, an automatic thing. And so that, that just continues to spiral, those sorts of situations. But most, first and foremost, the thing that, that prevents us from loving our enemies is we don't trust the Lord as the judge of all sin. We, we feel like we have to take justice into our own hands. So whenever somebody does something wrong, we think, I'll teach him a lesson. I'll show them that you shouldn't do that again. Right? And in so doing, I'll get my just desserts too. That is a natural response for us. Let me show you the commands that we we just can't even begin to fulfill if we don't love our enemies. Fourteen, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Let's just stop there. Bless, what, what does bless mean? Bless his heart? Bless his little heart? I have no clue what that means. But speaking from the scriptures, bless means to literally call the favor of God upon somebody. So a persecutor, somebody who's doing something actively to hurt you, it would look like praying, Lord, I pray your blessings upon this person. I pray your favor upon this person. That's what it looks like to bless and not curse. 17 through 21, take a look at those. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That is, let your response be such that everybody could look at it and say, dang, that's awesome. 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. That is, in the coming day of judgment, if he does not repent, the judgment of of God will be upon him. Because you responded only in love. God's judgment takes that into account. 21, do not be overcome by evil. That is, do not respond to evil with evil, but instead, overcome evil with good. So, Again, that's like another third of the passage that we just simply can't even begin to fulfill if we don't love our enemies. But I want to, at this point, just come back to the point of who or what we worship overflows into how we live. Part of the significance of that is that these commands aren't just given to you for you to fulfill on your own. Right? This is all an overflow of a relationship that you have. This is stemming from who you have believed in and this is stemming from who now fills you and this is empowered by who now walks with you. So these aren't just bare commands given to you to say, all right, go do it. This is the Lord saying, again, this is the way of life and I'm gonna walk with you. I love you because of what my son has done and I have filled you with my spirit and I am faithful to help carry you through to the day whenever you will be made perfect. And so we always have to have that in the back of our minds. And I especially want to make that clear as we talk about ways to push past these barriers because it's never going to be by resolve and it's never going to be by just more effort on our part that we begin to actually live as worshipers of the true God. It must always be rooted in who we believe in and who we rely upon as we walk this path. Okay. So I want to come back around and talk about Christian community. And on the basis of the word of God, I just want to encourage you just to commit. Whether that's here or whether that's somewhere else, just commit. Set down roots and be known. And I just want to paint a picture for you of what Christian community can really look like, okay? Whenever I was a student here at SFA, I stumbled into Christian community um, by a random chance, right? Uh, I was not a believer. I thought I was. Um, but my older sister wanted to go to a Bible study in, it's still the yellow house, right? Yeah, and there used to be a house next door uh, that was condemned shortly after I was here, Um, and there was a guys group there, and so I ended up just kind of walking in, and guys, I I had no clue what the Bible said. Um, I could have told you some basic things about Jesus, but I just stumbled in there, and through this process of getting to know these guys, um, I began to see that These were people who were just normal people. They were faithful Christians, but they they had mess in their lives. They were struggling. And they could be honest about that. And they didn't judge each other. And I could be free to say, I have no clue what you guys are talking about right now. Um, And I have a whole lot of junk in my life. And they were kind to walk with me and help me to learn the scriptures and to see what it looked like to walk with Jesus. And then through that, I got plugged into this church. And I just began to serve in simple ways. I ran sound um, for a long time and just found small ways to get involved. And um, on down the road, I began to get to know some of the adults here in this church. And I could sit down with a guy who'd been walking with the Lord 30, 40 years longer than me. And whenever life was blowing up, I could say, here's what's going on. Help me, because <laughs> I'm freaking out. This is Christian community. This is a beautiful thing. This is not a burdensome, life-taking thing that the Lord is calling you to. It's a a picture, and I just want to call you to commit to that, whether that's here or that's somewhere else. Just commit. The second barrier, making peace with fellow believers. This hits a little home, uh, a little close to home for some of you. Um, Whenever I talk about this, I bet a name or a face can come to mind. And it's probably uncomfortable to think about. But I want to help you to think through just some of the practicalities of the situation, right? Like I said, if it's an explicit conflict, something where there was a a fight or a disagreement or something like that, and there was a break because of it, there's two possibilities. Either you did the wronging or you were wronged, okay? So either you were at fault or you feel like you were the victim in the situation, Those are your two options. And then it kind of gets a little bit messy when you're like, well, it's kind of both. Okay, granted. Um, But the thing that I want to make clear to you is that regardless of what category you find yourself in, the Lord's call to you is to initiate seeking peace with that person. Okay? And I want to show you two texts because I want you to see it from the Word of God. Open up to Matthew and flip on over to chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 23 and 24. So if you've had a falling out with somebody, if you've been in conflict with somebody, and you were the one who committed the wrong, this is for you, okay? This is for me if I'm in that situation. 23. Jesus, this is the word of Jesus, and he's speaking to Jews. So, if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift so he's speaking to Jews and the way of worshiping God was to offer things at the at the altar to offer a sacrifice and he says peace with your brother peace with your sister is so important that it actually should come before offering and worship there is a wall that comes up between you and the lord until you address your conflict with a brother or a sister. This is how serious this is, right? So if you have wronged somebody, the Lord will call you to take the initiative to seek that person out and to say, hey, look, I, I wronged you. This is what I did. And I confess that before you that it was wrong. And I repent, and I just want to ask your forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? because I, I want to walk in peace with you. That's what it looks like to initiate whenever you have wronged somebody. But then there are situations whenever you have been wronged, right? And it's especially easy in this, these situations to say, well, hey, the ball's in their court, right? They were the jerk, and I just get to sit back and wait for them to come to me. Unfortunately, it's not the case. So flip on over to chapter 18. Chapter 18, and we're going to look at 15. Again, this is the word of Jesus. And he's speaking to his disciples. <clears throat> and he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. That is, don't grab your posse and say, hey bro, i got something to talk to you about. No, this is a personal conversation. This is something that to be had in a gracious spirit. This is not an opportunity for you to pounce on somebody. This is desiring genuine reconciliation to have peace, that you go and you say, hey, look, this is what you did. Um, this is how I felt, and I feel like this, it's caused a rift between us. And so I just, I don't want that to remain, right? And I feel like we need to talk about it. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. So if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so, if you have had an explicit conflict with a fellow believer, a brother or a sister, the Lord calls you to take the initiative, to move in grace, and to either say, look, I, I wronged you. I'm sorry. Or to say, hey, look, I was hurt whenever you did this. You know, I just want to talk about it. Because I don't want there to be a break between us. I feel like the Lord would have us walk in peace, and we need to talk about it but then there're also indirect conflict like i was talking about where it's just internal right where you've been harboring bitter bitterness or envy or judgment so what does it look like to address that cuz that's a little awkward right if you especially if you've been putting up a facade for a while and that person thinks everything is cool it's going to be a little bit weird to sit down with them and talk about it guess what that is normal human experience right and so The Lord would call you to take the initiative and go to that person and say, Look, there's been a while where I have felt this way towards you and it's caused me to drift from you. And I don't feel like I'm able to love you as a brother or as a sister like I should. And so I just want to talk to you about it. So if there are harbored negative feelings, those are things that first and foremost you need to confess and repent of before the Lord in prayer. And ask for his wisdom to then take the step and say, brother, sister, I'm sorry. And then finally, the final barrier, loving your enemies. The, the foundation of being able to do this, like I was saying, is, is believing in and trusting in the justice of God. Okay, so pick up your text, and I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you to flip back over to Romans 12. Because I want you to see this. The foundation of loving our enemies has to be rooted in understanding that God is the just judge. And whenever I say judge, that's judge with a capital J. Okay? Take a look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written in the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And so, as Christians, we live as humble creatures who have been forgiven. We were sinners who were rebellious, and we have been forgiven. And we know that God is the one who is the just judge, and it is in his hands to repay wickedness as he sees fit. And so, what does it look like for us as we are attacked by those who are outside the faith, who are actively opposed to us? It looks like praying for them and saying, Lord, Would you please have mercy on this person? And by your kindness and your goodness, literally by blessing them, would you draw them to yourself that they would know you, that they would love you, that they would walk with you? Have mercy on this person. And at at that point, it's in the Lord's hands what will happen. And on the coming day of judgment, if they have not repented, they will receive their just due from the Lord. That's not something that you have to worry about Doing yourself. The Lord will take care of that. But as for you, pray for that person. And then secondly, I want to to just encourage you to to actually take thought for how you can do good to that person. Take a look at verse 17. Repay no one for for evil, but, and this is key, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so if if I'm talking about an enemy, and it's like, A face or a name just immediately pops to mind. You're thinking, I I got one of those, maybe a couple. I want to encourage you to actually take thought. What can you say to this person that would bless them? What can you do to this person that would encourage them, that would show love, kindness, goodness, mercy to them? How can you live in such a way that they have absolutely no reason to hate you? And even if they continue to respond to you in hate, how can you continue to example example Jesus before them? This is something that doesn't happen in the spur of the moment. I promise you. This is something that is born out of prayer and reflection and asking the Lord, what does this even look like? Because I'm prone to be angry at this person. So give thought to do what is good in the sight of all. So, you guys are in this season of life where you're asking a ton of life questions and making a lot of life decisions. And I just want to remind you that God's will is not mysterious. It's not clouded in this time. God has made his will very clear for you that you are to live as a worshipper of the true God. And to do that, we have to commit to Christian community. It's just a fundamental necessity. We have to be at peace with our brothers and sisters. And if we're not, we have to take steps to be at peace with them. And we have to love our enemies. And this is all by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all by the mercy of God working in us and through us. We cannot do this alone. And I promise you, I promise you this, on the basis of scripture, on the basis of personal experience, on the basis of seeing this in the friends' lives, that as you grow in living as a worshiper of the true God, as you grow and actually being obedient to what the Lord has laid out clearly for you, then he will begin to help you discern the right and good path in circumstances. So as you ask questions about relationships, as you ask questions about job, as you ask questions about life direction, these things will begin to unfold as you discern, yeah, this is how I live as a Christian. We can't hypocritically say, I want to know the will of God whenever we live in disobedience to the revealed clear will of God. I want to encourage you, as you grow in faithfulness and living as a worshiper of the true God, these life circumstances will become clearer.